right, welcome to the Film Cafeteria, everybody. I'm Scott. And I'm Brittany. And today we are talking Steven Spielberg. Yes. In particular, we're talking two of his films, Jurassic Park from 1993 and 2005's War of the Worlds. Yes, and we figured because it was award season, yep. and he got a couple of the top awards of the Golden Globes, yep. that we'd actually do a special on Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and then he's a major conversation right now when it comes to the Oscars. And, uh, of course, we also have the new trailer for the new Indiana Jones movie. Yes. They, even though he's not directing it, it's James Mangold. It still um, uh, came out recently, and so there's, you know, I think a little bit of an interest in going back to those movies. Um, but, yeah, I mean, any time to me is a good time to talk about the great Steven Spielberg, one of the greatest filmmakers that we have ever had. Yes. And um, I'm just super excited to talk about it. So you actually came up with this idea. Yes. Do you want to talk about where you came up with this idea? Because I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I came up with the idea because <laughs> we were watching an animated series called Primal. And that's on HBO. Yeah, it's um, an Adult Swim. Yeah, it's yeah. an Adult Swim. And it's this amazing animated series about almost like a caveman-like era. Yeah. It was yeah. a caveman-like era, but it's mixed with like two or three other different eras where yeah. there's like a Macedon or woolly mammoth and then yeah. there's also dinosaurs yeah. and they're also coexisting in the jungle or in the wild, right? Before things were civilization and things were formed. And this amazing thing happens where the caveman and the dinosaur actually kind of team up, team up together and become like, buddies like best friends yeah they're like family they become yeah. buddies and they become each other family because their own family was destroyed by yeah. these other more vicious dinosaurs yeah and because of that they teamed up together and now their family and then it takes you through this whole journey yeah. of them having to fight off all these crazy wild things in that era and it's just such a beautiful love story if you really think about it, about yeah. friendship and yeah. like life and it's it's such a beautiful story. And you know what? It also even reminds me of a biblical verse actually mm -hmm. that says um there's a part and I think it's in I'm trying to see I think it's in Proverbs, but there's a part that says um if you have friends show yourself to be friendly uh -huh. and a brother will stick closer by you mm -hmm. than, like, you know, your friends will stick closer by you than even family would. Yeah. So friends are sometimes like your brother and they'll stick closer mm -hmm. to you like they're your brother. Yeah. And that's what that story reminds me of. It reminds me of two people who came from totally different eras and backgrounds and, and even different species mm -hmm. <laughs> that kind of came together for a common goal because they had very common things that happened and experience that happened to them. And now they've brought together by this like tragedy. It came, came out of this tragedy is love. Yeah. And I thought that was just such a beautiful story. So as we were watching it, I was like, okay, mm -hmm. okay. You know what? Watching dinosaurs and watching man versus dinosaur and watching dinosaur versus more vicious dinosaur. <laughs> I, I was like, let us put in some Steven Spielberg because it, it made me want to watch 
Jurassic Park. It just gave me this very nostalgic feeling. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, Jurassic Park, we have to watch it today. And then that gave me the idea to let's do a little special on our top, like, Steven Spielberg movies because, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, award season and he's there in a lot of talk about a lot of things and he's won the top awards for Golden Gloves, so let's do a special on him. Yeah, and I, I thought it was great because, uh, you know, you, you kind of immediately also talked about something else which is kind of like our top steven spielberg films and i am curious like if you have like a top three of steven spielberg's works i do but they're all still the children movies that he's made because those are the ones that still carry weight with me to this day yeah so it would be et yep jurassic park yep and i'm trying to think of the third one but they're all oh and hook Mm -hmm. so they're all three children movies yeah because those are the ones like that really made me start to love film so yeah. he was it's a big staple in my life all the three children movies and to this day those are still my three favorites yeah and it, that's what's so interesting about him is because when i think of some of my favorite works of his it's not necessarily the children's movies or, or it not even really children's movies but not necessarily the movies where he focuses on kids yeah you know i mean like for me but it's that innocence it's that purity it's that wonder because you're still young enough to see wonder in everything and i think that's why i love those three films oh absolutely and that's that's why i think it's so fascinating about him is because there are two sides of steven spielberg and we get to talk about this a little bit with the two movies that we picked because both of those were released simultaneously with movies that showed that other side of spielberg and for me, it's like when I think about his work, I mean, Jaws is my number one. Jaws will always be my number one. It's one of my favorite movies ever. But it's also, I think, the best. I think it's not only his best film in a lot of ways. I think it's also just simply one of the greatest, most perfect motion pictures ever made. I think it is just a perfect kind of film that just from a technical aspect, from the, you know, like, from all of the aspects of how the movie got made to the way its release occurred, the things that it wound up, you know, developing for good and bad, you know, it wound up giving us essentially the blockbuster as we now know it today for better and for worse. Simultaneously, it was also one of the most terrifying movies that you ever have seen, but that's definitely a movie that doesn't, that it has kids in it. I think the best scene that whole entire movie deals with a kid is when, um, uh, Roy Scheider is sitting with his son and his son is mimicking. I don't know if you remember that mm-hmm. scene where they're both sitting there mm-hmm. and his son starts mimicking everything he's doing. Like Roy Scheider's hands yeah. are kind of clasped and his son mimics that and he mimics everything. That's one of the best scenes of any film I've ever seen, but it's definitely the best scene out of Jaws. Yes. Um, but outside of that, it's like, you know, when I think about a lot of his movies, I mean, my other favorites are movies like Catch Me If You Can, you know, if I had a top three, it would probably be, you know, Jaws, Catch Me If You Can. And I would actually put Bridge of Spies on there because that is a more recent film that he did. But that's one of my favorite movies of his. Okay. And it is just absolutely gorgeous film that I I look at that movie and very similar to his recent West Side Story, I marvel at his technical abilities. Yes. His abilities to just almost write with a camera. Yeah. That is unbelievable to me. Yeah. Um. But those are kind of the two sides. You know, you have 
movies like E.T. Yeah. and Jurassic Park and Hook that definitely deal with that aspect of, of you know, him being very fascinated with innocence and with childhood. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously you have the aspects of him being very fascinated with, you know, kind of um, men reckoning with things in their lives, yeah. which is definitely the case for um, aspects of Jaws, but especially Bridge of Spies. Mm-hmm. And Catch Me If You Can is interesting because Catch Me If You Can is almost a spiritual sequel in some ways to E.T., two movies about divorce and the two different sides of divorce, yeah. you know, that there's a side of it where you're just lonely and all you want is a best friend, like mm-hmm. an E.T., and then there's the other side of it where all you want to do is just run away from home. Yeah. And just get away from all of the craziness. Yeah. And that's really fascinating about him. Those are things that I really, really love about him as a filmmaker and kind of his overall abilities as mm-hmm. as a as a filmmaker. Um do you kind of remember when you first knew about him as a filmmaker or kind of first kind of had an experience where you were sort of aware of who, even if you weren't necessarily aware that you were watching a Spielberg film, had some sense of awareness of him as an artist? I did not. I can't remember because, I mean, even when I knew it was Steven Spielberg's film, like E.T., because, I mean, I had family that, we're like movie people, like my mom and my dad, especially my dad. He's yeah. the one who taught me a lot about um, just creativity and art and all that stuff. And he was really interested in those things. And he's the one that's taught me about Steven Spielberg and all the movies. Like I got to learn those things through him. And he would tell me about E.T. and show it to me. And I would know that that was the Steven Spielberg's film. Mm-hmm. But I did not know him as the director at that time. Like that had no relation in my mind because I was I only love the story and to to some degree that's still how how I am now where I just really love great storytelling and whatever can touch that part of myself that just makes me like light up or glow like that's the that's what I'm looking for so I'm just now recently starting to really become very aware I say in the last like 10 years Mm -hmm. I've just become aware of directors and who makes the film but yeah. i've always loved the storytelling itself yeah um but i think i didn't become aware of steven spielberg until probably my mid to late like a mid to late um teens yeah that's when i really started to know who spielberg were like i knew his movies right like you would see his name and i would know his movie but that didn't mean anything to me at that time until about my mid to late teens yeah because then by then i wanted to be a writer myself mm-hmm. like a script writer and a, a author and, and that's when i started paying attention to like yeah. writers and filmmakers and things like that so i thought that was pretty cool so i i would say i didn't know it at the time yeah and well i mean that's one of the interesting things is that like you said like you know you were watching E.T. and you kind of knew it was a Spielberg Yeah, movie. I know, but it's like that has no relation to anything. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's a fascinating thing in that, like, I think that he is one of the rare individuals where you have an awareness of him as a director, even if you don't know what a director does. Yeah. There's something about the name being attached to it that likely dictates some element of the films of his that you respond to. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you kind of responded mostly to those movies where he dealt with children, likely there is an aspect of nostalgia attached to his name. Yep. And if you're a weirdo like me, who's just obsessed (laughs) with somebody's career, likely his name is kind of associated less 
a little bit with nostalgia, but more with a certain level of quality. Yeah. And that's the fascinating thing about him is that his film, that his filmography and his career is so kind of divided amongst things while simultaneously it just kind of is everything. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, He's the guy that made Schindler's List, which came out the same year as Jurassic Park, yeah. which means a whole host of things to a number of people. Simultaneously, is also one of the greatest cinematic achievements in history. But then at the same time, he's also Dawson's hero in Dawson's Creek. Yeah. You know, that yep. that is a crazy career to have when you think about it. Yeah. And that's why I said I didn't think I started really paying attention to who Steven Spielberg really was as a director or a filmmaker until yeah. I was in my mid to late teens because I remember Dawson Creek and I remember yeah. him being a big, like just a super fan of Steven Spielberg's work. And and I think that's when I started researching like yeah. who is this Steven Spielberg because Dawson's character was very something like, oh, that's cool for someone to find out what they want to be and who they are so early in life. I yeah. think that is such a blessing in itself to be able to find out your talents that early. Yeah. And so that made me want to know, like, okay, yeah. this kid knows yeah. like who this is and how he wants to kind of mirror himself after that. So I was like, who is this? And that's yeah. what made me start doing research on things like that. And it's a fascinating thing because at the time when Dawson's Creek came out, there are some people who would maybe argue that, you know, it would almost be more realistic for him to be like a Scorsese super fan or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. like whatever it may be. Right. The thing that's fascinating to me was that there was such an awareness across the board of Steven Spielberg. Yeah. That it was sort of like, if you say he wants to be a director and you say he wants to emulate Steven Spielberg, nobody's going to question who he talks about. No, because whether and, you're a child or a teen yep. or an adult, everybody knows who Steven Spielberg were yeah. by then, yeah. you know, at that time. And you didn't even really have to know what a director did. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to know anything about him. What you knew about Steven Spielberg was that his name was attached to movies that you loved as a kid, that your parents likely said, oh, it's a Spielberg movie. Yeah. And then either took you to it or put it on on the VHS or DVD player, however old you are. And, like, for me, it was VHS. Yes, for me, and, it was VHS. <laughs> and then eventually DVD. But as a kid, it was VHS. And likely there was some element of you having a full like awareness of who he is as an individual yes and what he means to movies even if you're not necessarily a super fan of his work for whatever reason so it's interesting that he is simultaneously a kind of a pop culture name and also one of the greatest filmmakers that's ever lived and one of the rare people where I mean, a number of people have said this, so this is nothing original, but like one of the rare people where it feels like he was just born knowing how to make movies. Yeah. The joke that I've always had with Steven Spielberg is that he's the only human being that can tell the sun where to go. And I think that that's true all the way to this day. You know, it was like when we went and saw West Side Story, the opening sequence, you really do just look at it and go, yep. He still can do it. He can still look up at the sun and go, nah, move over there. And it yes. does it for him. You don't understand how it works. And yes. it's incredible. Yes. You know, it's unbelievable. <laughs> but um, really quick before we jump into Jurassic Park, this is always an interesting question to me. Are there any Steven Spielberg movies that you just kind of didn't really respond to or maybe didn't like? 
honestly, I don't think I've seen. I don't know. I guess I guess you're asking that in what I have seen because I was like, yeah. I don't think I've seen all of him to make that kind of mm-hmm. like that kind of judgment on it. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know because I don't think I've ever truly disliked any of him. I'm not. I'm not always saying like his movies are my favorite, right? Yeah. But I don't think there's been any that I dislike. Yeah. Because you remember, there was, um, I'm trying to remember the film about the horse. War Horse. War Horse. There yeah. was a lot of, I heard not so good reviews about that movie and stuff like that. Yeah, when came I around. actually like that one. But yeah. I like that one. That's what I was about to say. So I'm like, what I'm trying to say is, I don't think if I, whatever comes up the top of my head, yeah. I don't think there's not a single one I dislike. Yeah. They may not always be my favorite, but there's not a single one that I disliked. So, the reason I'm asking this, and the reason I think this is so interesting, there are some of his that I didn't really like all that yeah. much. Like, I, I was a little confused about the BFG. You know, wasn't really the biggest fan of that one. I don't really know. See, that's what I'm saying. Um, I haven't seen some of those. That, that was the recent one that he did that was partially animated that uh, See, Mark Rylance was in where he plays the giant based on the Roll doll. Thing. No, I, we, seen it. I think we actually watched it together and you might have fallen asleep. Oh, yeah. Through. I was about to um, say then. I probably don't remember it, see? So it, I can't judge it if I can't even remember it. Like, I'm not a huge fan of that one. I, I didn't really necessarily like 1010. I, the Adventures I of 1010. I liked The Adventures of 1010. I wasn't really 100% in on it. Um, I saw that one. I remember. I kind of liked that one. I didn't really like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The Indiana, the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Well, but I haven't really paid attention to that one. I can't lie. That's why I say I don't judge it if I I can't even remember it. It's it's interesting in that like there are some that I just don't really respond to for whatever reason. It's interesting he's had such a full career that as much as he's made seemingly one masterpiece after another, we oftentimes forget that. Amistad also happened, you know. Oh well, then I or, or well then I can I would call out that one because I actually saw Amistad and I did not like that yeah. one. Yeah, so and, there is one that I did not like, and another one that we'll get to a little bit later that some people really liked and some people didn't really like was you know Jurassic Part Two. The Lost World also happened, so like I, I it, didn't mind it, that one. Yeah, it's like it may it, not have been my favorite, but I didn't mind it. And I think the reason this is kind of interesting is because moving into Jurassic Park now. This was a very odd time in his career. Yes. He made the film, well, he, I think he shot it in 92, but the film was released in 93. It was released the same year in 1993 as Schindler's List. There was an aspect of Schindler's List being a one for me and Jurassic Park being a one for you kind of scenario. Um, Since both of them were released by Universal Pictures, I think that... uh, there was a little bit of a some hesitation around Schindler's List because it was a three-hour black-and-white movie starring Liam Neeson, who had not made Taken yet, so he was yeah. not exactly... He was still kind of Rob Roy at yeah. that time. He wasn't exactly, you know, Mr. I'm-gonna-jump-around-with-guns and yeah. kill everybody. Um, so it was kind of a big gamble, mm-hmm. and I think that to make them feel a little bit better about this enormous gamble they were taking, he had agreed to do Jurassic Park. These are two masterpiece films on two completely different sides of the spectrum that were followed by, however you may feel about these films personally, 
three movies that were not necessarily critically favored. Okay. Which were Always and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that came out in 1989. Mm -hmm. I will say that I mostly consider Indiana Jones to be a trilogy, being Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade. I don't really count Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, <laughs> and unless this new one is unbelievable, I don't really think that I'm going to count that one either. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I will say of the three, the Last Crusade is my least favorite of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you had Always and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989, 1991, you had Hook. Okay. So these three films are not necessarily critically loved. Hey, I don't even care. I, <laughs> I don't care. I love Hook. I don't I, even care. I remember liking Hook as a kid. I don't really know how I'd respond to it now. I I, I, I know I still love it because I yeah. watched it a couple of years ago and I still so, loved it just as much. Weirdly, I remember when you put it on and I remember watching through some... Yeah, of, I can recite that entire movie. Yeah, I, I know like you were... Like, that is a very close movie to your heart. Yes, you know and that I've seen multiple versions of that story, Peter Pan. Yeah. And I think it's because I can I can closely relate to it in the sense of, yeah, no matter how I grew up outwardly yeah. and I still have responsibilities and all these things, on the inside, I'm just a big kid. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love seeing that whole story of Peter Pan where he actually got to... To choose yeah. to never grow up. Yeah. And never have any responsibility. Yeah. And just have imagination, wild imagination, and like play forever. You know, he got he got to play, you know, that forever. And I and I and I love that's still a part of me where there's things in my life where I get still get to do that. Yeah. Where in your head and heart you're still a kid. Yep. And that's what that story reminds me of. And I thought it was actually an interesting take because you know, Steven Spielberg kind of did in reverse where by this point in Hook, Peter Pan is already an adult now. He's grown up. Yeah. But the funny thing I always like to like mention in this story is how it took him forever to grow up. Because think about it. Yeah. He got to see Wendy and meet Wendy. But by the time he actually decides to grow up and have a family and a wife and all that stuff, he's married to like Wendy's like granddaughter or something like yep. that. So that tell you how long so it, it took this man to grow up. Yeah. And I find that very interesting. I yeah. find that a very interesting kind of psychological thing for yeah. my own kind of like thing I like to like research and look at is yeah. that this man took like two almost two lifetimes to pretty much yeah. grow up. And then sometimes don't you feel that in real life you wish you had that? Yeah. Yeah, don't sure. you wish you had yeah. two lifetimes to really grow up and fully for mature sure. because now you've done it and done it now you're like okay now i'm done yeah i'm ready to now become an adult <laughs> i wish i had that choice yeah so i i actually like that movie just based on those kinds of like psychology kind of like yeah. i'm very interested in things like that the human yeah. behavior so i like seeing that kind of aspect and having like steven spielberg take us back to where he's already an adult and now he has to go back and remember what it was like yeah to be a child, in some ways, as an adult, we lose that part of ourselves. Yeah. And it's okay every now and then to go back to it. Yeah. I think you have such a, a much joyous life that way. Yeah. I think it's okay because to always go, I'm an adult, I'm an adult, I'm an adult, and always be serious about everything, to me, does not make life enjoyable at yeah, all. for sure. So I love to tap in 
to that like that childlike part of myself. Yeah. And I think that's what that movie did for me, and that's why I still love it to this day. I I think the way that you talk about that movie and respond to it, I've always felt like that's kind of the same way that I respond to Close Encounters. Yes. And Close Encounters is just one of those movies that I have been in love with and obsessed with for ever in a day and uh, for yeah i was thinking about that one to pick for this one but i think it's a little bit more interesting and talk about the aspect of you know with that movie it's a very very similar thing right because roy is essentially kind of reverting to a sense of childhood due to this calling that is far beyond him with these aliens kind of communicating with him saying something to him the irony is, is that Spielberg regretted the ending later on where he kind of just gets on the ship and leaves his family. Now, to me, I never saw that ending as being weird <laughs> because the entire idea is that it's beyond this planet, right? It's beyond his control. Yeah. So I never necessarily saw that ending as being weird. I think it would be weird if he suddenly didn't get on the ship. <laughs> and try to explore then, that. <laughs> because then he's just a crazy person yeah. who really was very dangerous to his family yeah like, yeah you're right that, at that, that point much different story <laughs> i really you get on the ship too at that point <laughs> and so that was the thing that that but like the way you talk about hook and that entire idea of you know like kind of remaining to some degree or another attached to that aspect of yourself when you're younger mm -hmm. is a lot of what i respond to with close encounters now interestingly talking about close encounters leading back into Jurassic Park Jurassic Park is kind of for all intents and purposes an interesting kind of film to talk about right now with the Fablemans being out and yes. the Fablemans being a kind of look back on his career and the kind of beginning of his career and a look back on aspects of you know a certain point in his life it is very fascinating to me because Jurassic Park is, by and large, he was at an odd point in his career, critically. You know, I, I think that even a little bit in terms of audience reception, too, because Always was not a movie that a lot of people responded to very well. And I think that uh, even from an audience perspective, Last Crusade and Hook were movies that I think kids responded to relatively well, but kind of adults that were expecting something by this point out of Steven Spielberg were kind of like, I don't know what the hell he's doing. Like that was kind of, that seemed to be kind of the overall response. It was very interesting that with Jurassic Park, he seemingly decided to look back at a specific point in his career where he had a major success and step back into no pun intended or maybe pun fully intended similar waters by making a film that is more or less a successor to Jaws. Yeah. And that he himself referred to Jurassic Park as Jaws on Land. <laughs> he even went back to the entire idea of finding a man versus nature film. You know, like in big air quotes, man versus nature film. That was a very successful book. It's, of course, based on a book by Michael Crichton. Um, and choosing to take that and use that as the basis for this crazy adventure movie that deals with scientists and uh you have a quint type character with the hunter yeah uh in, in the film and um this time incorporating something a little bit different by incorporating the kids as a more major aspect of the film whereas in jaws they were 
simply just not necessarily victims, but they were characters they were placed there for you to worry about to give Rory Scheider's character a reason to go back onto the ocean. Yeah. And to go out onto the ocean that he's afraid of to hunt this shark. Yeah. With this one, he kind of plays with the inverse where Dr. Grant is just afraid of kids. <laughs> he's not afraid of the monsters. I don't know if he's afraid of them. He just, I don't think he cares for them too much. You know, it's like... I, I mean, if you think that's the same thing, then cool, but I don't think that he's I, afraid of them so much. I think from, I don't think he likes them because it seems like he doesn't want the responsibility of taking care of them. And I think from from my perspective, a little bit of that has to do with fear of having uh, to... Maybe so, but know, I go, if that's really fear... I don't know because even when you um, watch the latest Jurassic Park, yeah, the most recent one, which I don't count. I'm yeah, just kidding. <laughs> I mean they come back and he still doesn't have children. Yeah, yeah, he's not married and he still doesn't have children, yeah. which tells me that he prefers it. It's not just yeah. about fear sometimes with those. Sometimes that is a choice. Yeah, and I think he really prefers it that way because to him, I think his work is his child, his books, That's, him writing, him. Yeah. His work is that. That's yeah. what he likes to spend his time and responsibility on. And some people are like that, and that's yeah. cool. Yeah, that's cool. absolutely. That's okay. And that was, <laughs> I think that was kind of always the fear with him, if you, you know, kind of look at it under that angle. It, it, I think that that was always kind of the fear with him was having to split his love between this child and his real first love, which was his work. Yeah. And... That was interesting to me that... He don't want to share his love, and that's no, fine. <laughs> absolutely not. And that was what was interesting to me, though, about the way that Spielberg approached this film versus Jaws. Where, yeah. you know, with Jaws, it is the children that push this guy to overcome his biggest fear of the water. Yeah. To go out and hunt this thing. And within Jurassic Park, he has to kind of sideline his in a lot of ways, sideline what he would prefer to do if he was on his own, which would be to start tracking and studying these dinosaurs while he's stuck out here. Yeah. And in favor of getting these kids back to safety. Yeah. It's a very interesting inverse of, of, you know, kind of the, the kind of character pushes and pulls. Um, but now fully into Jurassic Park here. Uh, when did you first see this movie? And I think I saw it the honestly, I think I saw it the year it came out. Yeah. Because I was about seven years old then. Yeah, I was like two going on three. Yeah, so I think I I actually saw it mm-hmm. when it came out the same year. I mean, I don't remember going to the theaters because at that time, you know, there's like five of us. <laughs> so I think my parents was like, okay. A couple of them, two or three of them are like really young. I don't know how long they'll sit still in the theater. So I think that was one of the reasons why we didn't go see it in the theater. Mm -hmm. But the moment it came out on video Mm -hmm. at Blockbuster, we rented it. And then they bought us the movie and we loved it ever since. We probably tore that film up, like really watching it all the time. We wanted to see it all the time. I mean, my brothers even had the the um like action figures to them like they had Tom Tyrannosaurus Rex they had the T Rex yeah they had the um Velociraptor yeah and then they they had Doctor Grant mm-hmm. they had um Doctor Ellie they yeah. had um 
They had a couple other characters. I think they had Sam Jackson. Yeah. And they had the actual fenced-in part where if you um, put batteries in it, uh-huh. when you did something to the fence or when you moved it, it actually lit up. Like, it oh, had cool. the tower yeah. to where the T-Rex fence was, and they would yeah. put their T-Rex inside of that, like, gated-in tower and yeah. stuff. So I'm like, we were super fans. Yeah. And, I mean, as a kid, I also had a a Dr. Grant action figure and a little Velociraptor figure. Yeah. And was and it was one of the funny things we called out when we were watching the movie, right, was that Spielberg was, with this one, very much kind of poking and prodding a little bit at it, but also just kind of like simultaneously giving you a sneak preview into the consumerist aspect of this movie. That, yeah. You know, I mean, the movie is, by and large, talking about the kind of dangers of a consumerist attitude. Yeah. And is humorously playing knowing that knowing goodwill that there are going to be Jurassic Park lunchboxes and Jurassic Park action figures and Jurassic Park <laughs> stuffed dinosaurs that we're all yeah. going to go and as kids all going to want. Yeah. And he shows a full display case of them at one part in the gift center. Yeah. It's like there is a lot of I also just remember that I also used to have the Jurassic Park Jeep that yes, came they with by too. Dr. Grant. They yeah. had a Jeep. Yeah, so as soon as you mentioned that, I'm like, oh, they did. They had the whole thing that came with it as well. Yes, yeah. they did have the Jeep as well. And that that was one of the most incredible things going back to the movie. Yeah. And getting into that, like, how did you feel going back to it? And It was nothing but pure nostalgia for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's always nice when you can go back and be a kid again for a while. And you're excited. And you've seen it 10,000 times. Yeah. But you're excited all over again because you just love the way that movie makes you feel. Yeah. And it gets me so excited and going, ah, and just like, it just gets me so excited. <laughs> yeah. And it takes back takes me back to my childlike state. So yeah. I like it. And I mean, like, I know from myself, like going back to it, it's it's always a very similar thing where... The second that I, even if I'm not necessarily in it in like the very opening of the movie, which Mm -hmm. usually I am, but even if I'm not necessarily like really kind of paying attention in the opening, because I've seen the movie so many times, the second that they get to the brachiosaur that's, you know, grazing on the tree and there's the big wide shot and John Williams's gorgeous score just swells up, I am like... Yeah, no, everything else stops until this movie is over. Yeah. It is just one of those movies. It's yeah. just like, it is It is very nostalgic to go back to it, but it's also easy to go back to it because it's such an incredible film. Yeah. And that is, can bring you back in with those characters and everything. And I guess that's the next thing to really kind of get into with this one is like the cast of this film. Yes. Is so unbelievable with, you know, you have, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum kind of playing the kind of three central scientists. Yeah. Richard Attenborough being the... I mean, it says he's a doctor too, so... He, he He's a doctor of something. Yeah. We're not 100% sure <laughs> And they what. never truly explained it? No, it, it seems like he got like some kind of like an honorary doctor at somewhere <laughs> and just started walking around calling himself a doctor. You're funny. he is definitely... Um, he is definitely when you the more you get to know him, the more you realize that he is definitely a man that is very excited about a coming attraction and not a man of science. I and, don't know if I if I would fully agree with that. Uh-huh. To some degree, yes, of course. Uh-huh. But I don't know if I fully agree with that just because 
I think there was in the opening, you kind of get to see how excited he be, he becomes when he even tells the scientists that's working in the labs where they stop on the ride, you mm -hmm. know, and he says, um, you didn't call me. Why didn't you notify me? Uh -huh. He was like, I love to see them born, uh -huh. you know. When, when they're born, I, yeah. I love to be here. I yeah. want to see it. I want to be here from when everyone is born. Yeah. And I think to some degree, that has to be his love of that part of the science. Like, that has I, to be. And then he even sent a group of, you know, scientists and philanthropists. Mm -hmm. Well, not philanthropists. I was about to say philanthropists, but I meant... Um, Paleontologists. Yes, yeah. paleontologists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Children, of course. But, yeah. like, no, I'm trying to... I mean, like, he sent a group of them out to even dig up fossils and do this whole yeah. research. Yeah. So he's a doctor of something. Yeah. But it's just funny that it turns more into this more naive kind of person versus yeah. science because he builds this whole theme part for people to come and enjoy that kind of science. The same yeah. thing he loves, right? But then he's so naive about it yeah. that you make me wonder. That's I mean, I can agree with you when you say a, a doctor of what? Because yeah. in some degree, I'm like, a doctor of what? Like, yeah. did you think this would be a good idea to bring intermingled dinosaurs with humans? I mean, that's yeah. why they existed before humans, not while humans existed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, like, it's a little weird, you know, but okay. He, he's a, he is a tremendous, especially when you look back at this movie, He's a tremendous placeholder for people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and, you know, even to a degree like Elon Musk, yeah. where no matter what you may feel about any of these individuals that I just named, you know, personally, there is that undeniable aspect that there is a passion for something that they're involved yeah, with. Yeah, of course. Simultaneously, there's also this aspect of them where it's like, there's not a whole lot of thought about the repercussions of, of anything yes. that is also obviously placed into a lot of these See, things. now that, that I agree with. Yeah, yes. and, and that's the thing that, like, you know, is fascinating and incredible about his character is that he is a guy who, you know, there's the moment where he brings them all in that you had called out while we were watching it. He brings them all in, and they're eating... It would look. I made the joke. It looked like seared fish sticks or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it was chicken man, but yeah. <laughs> there's something about it. It just looked a little off, and then you see Laura Dern's face, kind of like, "What is this exactly?" Like, you know, it's like so there's something kind of humorous to me about that. But like, um, you know, he, uh, uh, Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, mm -hmm. gets in this whole entire thing about like this is just this is just wrong, and, and he was to me the hit the he, he did the nail on the head the closest to how he <laughs> expressed the lack yeah. of like it, yeah he's he, he's very just, like he said the consequences of what you've just yeah. done <laughs> he, he's very you know straight up about it that he's like you know you you did not think out the consequences you thought about how incredible this was you stood on the shoulders of better scientists to achieve something that many would probably say was unachievable which is great but now before we can even understand it, you've packaged it and sold, sold it, it and patented yeah. it and wrapped it in a, a, a beautiful lunchbox to sell. Yeah. And, and then what else does he say? <laughs> I can't believe. And this was uh, written, uh, yeah, Richard, Richard Attenborough's part yeah. where he was like, I can't believe that the only one that is on my side it's is the, the blood-sucking blood lawyer. <laughs> and, and it was so like cool because the reason why you got to see that naivete yeah. with his, with Dr. Hammond. You got to yeah. see it. And I was just like, this is why you need an outside perspective before you did this. Yeah. You didn't need them now. Yeah. You needed them before you did this. Yeah. Before you you just 
try to be God. Like before you try to create something yeah. that wasn't meant to relive all over again. That's yeah. one. Two, I thought it was amazing because the one that can relate to you the most is the blood sucking lawyer. Yeah. Because he he's wants just the as, money. Yeah, he's just as naive <laughs> as you. All he's looking yeah. about, he don't care about the repercussions yeah. just like you didn't. All he cares about is how much money can we make off of this? Yeah. Because he was talking about charging people 10 and 20 and $30,000 packages just yeah. to come to this resort of dinosaurs mm-hmm. and get the full experience off of it. And one of the main telling parts that he was just as bad, that Dr. Hammond was just as bad as the lawyer, was the meals. Mm-hmm. That's why Laura Dern was looking at meals like, what is this? Like, I wouldn't mind just a cheeseburger and fries. Yeah. Did you get what I'm saying? Their lunch was like top shelf mm-hmm. made stuff. And yeah. that tells you what what you think about too. So yeah. you're not matching what you're saying. Yep. And but he but Dr. Hammond does mention, like, no, I want everybody to have access to it. And I'm going, really? Because, I mean, even the food you just put down in front of me, what everyday person can afford this? Yeah. That's yeah. why I thought it was the weirdest thing. I'm like, no. So you're you're even disconnected with what you're trying to I sell. Mean, all the way down to, you know, even the, the aspect of when they're talking about coming into the park and everything. And he's, you know, Hammond says, you know, uh, I want this to be available to everybody. Yeah. And the lawyer goes, yeah, we can have a coupon day. Yeah, a and coupon it was just day. like, what a what? jackass. Yeah. And I'm like, but guess what? You had to build something where every, evidently yeah. people can think like this because this is not for the everyday person. Who, for one, how was it able to be for the everyday people yeah. when they had to fly out there to, an, to an, a like remote island? Yeah. Think about that. How many everyday people yeah. can actually afford yeah. to fly out to a remote island? island so that tells you how disconnected he really was with the whole concept of what he was doing and that's why jeff global i i fully agree with everything (laughs) that the scientists were saying because i was like yeah they're scientists they're in all of this believe me but everything else that surrounds this is like mind-boggling to them so is it to me the everyday people can't afford this who can fly out to a remote island and look at dinosaurs and and, you know the the irony to me is that and we had you know, so I, actually, the blood sucking lawyer was right where he's he's yeah. supposed to be. He said the right thing. And to me, the irony of it is, and I guess just for context, we did attempt to record this yesterday and had a very difficult time due to just surrounding noises and stuff. Yeah. But to bring something back up that you had mentioned during our first attempt at this was going on the ride at Universal and Islands of Adventure. Yeah. To me, the humorous aspect of this in so many ways is this. Spielberg was already calling something that is a reality today, which is that going to a lot of these amusement parks now is not something that the average person can afford. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was crazy to me that, you know, even I think it was like, it was right before the pandemic that somebody that I worked with had mentioned that they had saved up for an entire year to take their kids to Disney. To hear that is like crazy. And you think about what Disney is yeah, or what Universal and Islands Adventures are. These are theme parks that are geared toward families and kids, but yet not everybody can actually afford it. And in order for some people to afford it, they literally have to put away for a year yeah, to plan it out to get their kids there. Yeah, And it's so insane to me how these little aspects of Jurassic Park were are such enormous aspects when you look at it today. Yeah, because look at Jurassic Park on the level 
of an amusement park. Yeah. If it's barely affordable to regular everyday families today, yep. what would it be a park with <laughs> dinosaurs on it? Uh, How much more would that cost be yeah. to upkeep? Yeah. It's the upkeep of everything. Yeah. Do pe- How can you charge? It's a zoo mm. times a thousand. Exactly. So how can you charge <laughs> like everyday normal prices and still yeah. keep up in a whole island of dinosaurs? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. The financial, like, the financial budget for that is not there. Oh yeah. If you're it's... talking about everyday people coming in. Yeah. So when the lawyer said that, he was on point. Yeah. You're the one that's disconnected because yeah. he's on point. And the crazy thing is, is that you can tell Hammond is the kind of guy who is naive enough to where he would likely during his lifetime have it to where it would be just barely affordable for almost, you know, like I would say like middle-class families and above mm-hmm. to go. But the second that he's gone, that oh, is, yeah. that park is insanely expensive yeah. and nobody can get into it unless yeah. they are within the 1%, you know, and that that's yeah. one of the things I think is so incredible that he's, you know, even then he was already pointing to things and, and looking at things that may have at the time been slightly humorous or kind of like, oh, I can imagine that being a thing in 10 years. And today looking at it, it's in a totally different context. And that stuff is all just real now. Mm-hmm. You know, now it really is going to an amusement park where Jurassic Park is part of that amusement park yeah. is unbelievably expensive. And you really do have to go on coupon day yeah, to be able to afford it. And, you can't even, <laughs> and guess what? The sad thing about it is that you can't even go on coupon day. Yeah. To me, coupon day would just be a tease for anyone yeah. that can't afford it because first, you talking about coupon day, but how are you even going to get to the island, my good yeah. sir? Yeah. How am I supposed to pack up, Yeah. you know, three kids if I'm being the husband or wife yeah. and them, me, myself, and my three children, how am I supposed to be able to pack them up and take them to a, another destination to go on an island for coupon day. Yeah. That's why I said none of that stuff makes sense. Yeah. It's so detached from what was actually possible. So yeah. the lawyer was pretty much right. Yeah. Like it would take really rich families to afford that. And coupon day is still only for the rich because it would be that time like maybe you get $5,000 off of your yeah. $10,000 or maybe you get $2,000 off your $10,000 purchase. Yeah. Yeah. That's coupon day. Yeah. Coupon day does not exist for the everyday person because they couldn't even afford to even buy plane tickets to get there. Yeah. Much less see dinosaurs. Yeah. And that, that's, that's kind of like all of the the crazy stuff about it is that like all of that stuff factors and stuff that's very, very real when it comes to going to some of these things now and experiencing them. So it is kind of insane that that stuff was already present in this movie then. I guess really quick, um, because we're not going to have a throwback recommendation today. No, we're not. But I did want to throw a movie out there for if anybody wants to check it out, which was a Richard Attenborough movie called Magic with Anthony Hopkins. Have you ever seen this movie? I've never seen this movie. Um, To give a quick overview of what it is before we jump back into Jurassic Park, Magic is a movie in which Anthony Hopkins plays a magician who is a brilliant magician but is uh, a terrible showman. <laughs> so he's almost like David Blaine level incredible, but has none of David Blaine's showmanship. Is almost kind of standing there very boring, okay. kind of you know just presenting stuff and nobody really gets it. Uh, you cut to years later, and suddenly, like a few years later, 
and suddenly there are lines around the block to see him, and he now is doing the same act, but he has a ventriloquist dummy as part of his act. And from there, it starts getting into some very, very dark stuff of what that dummy is. And okay. It is an incredible film that not a lot of people have seen, uh, at least in today. Not a lot of people, mm-hmm. I don't think, have seen it. I've brought it up a few times, and people didn't even realize that the guy who directed Jurassic Park, I mean, the guy who was uh, in Jurassic Park directed films. Okay, you know, yes. and uh, But Richard Attenborough, of course, is a, a was a tremendous director. His brother, David Attenborough, is mm-hmm. a... Uh, has made some tremendous documentaries and mm-hmm. continues to do so. Um, but that would be, if we did do a throwback recommendation today, that would be the movie that I would pick because it is a phenomenal movie. So if anybody wants to check out Magic, that is a great, with Anthony Hopkins, that is a great film. Um, do you believe in magic? <laughs> <laughs> um, jumping back into a couple of the people who were in the movie, we also had rounding out the cast along with those central Three people in Richard Attenborough. We had Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards as the kids. Yes. Kids who, as a kid, I was a little envious of them being able to go to this park despite the insanity I'm surrounding sure every it. kid was. Um, <laughs> Until you see what happened and you're like, yeah. no, you're, you know, I'm, no, I'm the lucky one because I got to stay here and not yeah. worry about my life. But um, I think one of the aspects <laughs> that they captured so well talking about some of the stuff was seeing them go through the park yeah when they first get on the first of all like i absolutely adore like probably my favorite part of the movie is when they first get into the jeeps yeah and go through because you know how much i love rain and thunderstorms yes. in movies and and in life too but especially that atmosphere yeah. in a movie and we're talking about two movies in which storms are done so well it's one of those things where you look at it, you're like, oh yeah, Steven Spielberg does some of the best cinematic storms yes, he does. that I've ever seen. Um, when they get on the Jeeps and they're going through and the kids are waiting to see the dinosaurs and the paleontologists are waiting to see the dinosaurs and they just don't see anything. Yeah. It reminds me of, I don't know how many trips that, you know, as a kid we went to the zoo and I'm excited to see like the crocodile or whatever and, we get up to the exhibit and it's nowhere to be found. My parents are like, I guess he didn't want to come out today. Yeah. And, and that's and I, another aspect. Yeah. Paying that much money and then, you know, and you that's get to what see I was the dinosaurs. Say, is that in hindsight, I look back at it now and I'm like, if I was my parents and I took my kid, spent all this money, take my kid, park, get out, walk them through here. Oh, they, they got to have a snow cone because they can't come in here without having a snow cone or Coca-Cola <laughs> or, what, cotton what, or cotton candy or whatever you or know it is or popcorn. They, they, they can't be in here without having that. They can't be in here without going to the gift shop. They can't be, so <laughs> you have to deal with all this stuff just to get to the exhibit and they're sad. Yeah. And they're disappointed by yep. the entire trip because because the one thing that they showed the up to see wasn't are, they didn't yeah. want to come out because they're not animals because, to be kept. Yeah, it's not a natural thing to be like, look, we're gonna put it on display. It's like horrible. Yeah, <laughs> and even Doctor Grant says it in the movie. Remember, he says they don't want to be fed; they want to hunt. Yeah, they're when predators. They, when they put the goat up to yes. try and get the goat to come out, and I agree. And, I'm like, the they're predators. Yep. They want to hunt their prey. They mm-hmm. don't want to be given. What is the point of the chase if you're a predator? Absolutely. That is your natural instinct yeah. is to hunt. Yep. And you can't even hunt. Yep. What? And that that was one of the things that I thought was 
awesome, you know, about yeah. that, that aspect of the movie was that that is one of the truest things I've ever <laughs> seen. So I cannot think of, I cannot count how many times that we went somewhere to see some animal put up on display that that should have never been happening with. Yeah. Just for me to be like a five-year-old that was unbelievably disappointed that I didn't get to see. Yeah. Because you whatever. can't control. Yeah. Because you-, <laughs> you can't control what an animal wants to do or feel or wants to what? Like, we're crazy. But um, anyway. <laughs> and so I love that aspect of it. I love the aspect of um, the, the two kids being immediately drawn to Dr. Grant him having yeah. to deal with them. I mean, sometimes Dr. Sadler putting them up to it. Yes. So it was funny. Because, but... you know, the Joe Mazzello's character immediately is attached to him because he read his book. Yes. And it's that thing where it's like... And then, of course, because of the business his grandfather in, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that is something in the family that kinds, kind of like trickles through the family. I, so you could tell he's interested in that side of science, science anyway. Absolutely. I think the other thing that Spielberg captured so well, though, is that... You know, today I really have to, like, unpack the suitcases in the very back of my brain to remember (laughs) the names of dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. But as a kid, I can name all of them. Yeah, me too. I had a book that, like, had the fossils... Naming which which fossils were yep. what part of the fossil and all the dinosaurs and it it had pictures of what they looked like and had their names before and yep. you got to learn all of that so definitely and I I think that was one of the incredible aspects of what he captured with this was that there is no age in which you are going to be the number one fan of a paleontologist quite like when you're a child yeah unless you grow up into that field yeah and in that way you know thinking about it it is almost kind of a hidden Peter Pan story Mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, what is the best job in the entire world when you're that age obsessed with dinosaurs to grow up and be a paleontologist. Yeah. So to some degree or another to grow up and actually become a paleontologist when that obsession started with childhood, you have held on to something for your entire life that you never let go of and you turn it into your very being and your very life. And in that way, that is kind of going back and mining that same territory that he was playing with, with hook without it being on the surface, yeah, which I think is incredible. Now, to your point, of course, <laughs> when it comes to the girl played uh, by Ariana Richards, she is sent over because of Dr. Sadler, because she has the great life of, I mean, she has the great line of, uh, uh, you know, she said that it would be good if I rode with you. Yeah. So I'm going to ride with you. <laughs> yes. And that, that whole aspect of the three of them together was incredible. And the way that that is simultaneously happening with the aspect of there are a few things that I think are funnier than watching Jeff Goldblum hit on Laura Dern. And especially this was at the period where the two of them were both like beautiful people. Yeah. Like they were very beautiful to look at. Yeah. And Sam Neill was at that time a very, very handsome man. Oh, yeah. And that whole entire very quiet kind of competition between those two very attractive guys over this very attractive girl is hilarious in the most classical kind of screwball comedy way that 
I just love because I mean I I absolutely love just watching Jeff Goldblum sitting there hitting on her talking about uh, chaos chaos droppings and you know like his whole little bit where he's talking about like how the water is going to roll on her hand and he's like see there, there are little imperfections and the you know you can't uh, predict a, see like we can predict that Dr. Grant was going to get out of the car and uh, then now you're out of the car I couldn't predict that now I'm here uh, talking uh, to myself yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like some of the greatest you know kind of stuff there yeah um and of course also interestingly rounding off the cast you 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 had wayne knight mm-hmm. who uh, to me just is newman i think yeah, to that's his, newman <laughs> i think to his own frustration even he just yeah. is newman you know yes. um Sam Jackson killing a pack of cigarettes in this movie. Yeah, he was. Absolutely murdering a pack <laughs> of cigarettes. Um, and uh, uh, B.D. Wong, who is very interesting to me because yeah. he, he is a very small part in this where yeah. he is the doctor that, is, or the really the biotech engineer. Yeah, at the beginning. Who, uh, when Richard Attenborough and the team come in and watch a Velociraptor hatch, yeah. is kind of... Um, beautifully explaining uh what it is that they do and how all this works and the fact that he gives the biggest plot point in the whole entire movie which is that they genetically engineer all of the dinosaurs to be female yeah and if you're an audience member who's looking at every last little thing you've already seen that their dna is from amphibians yeah and that they genetically engineered all of them to be female when that happens to amphibians in the wild, <laughs> they will randomly switch sex to become the opposite sex so that they can breed. Yeah, they can so, breed. Yeah, because that's, that's evolution. That's yep. how they keep their species alive. So that's what I'm saying. Those simple things. Think yeah. about it. We're not even scientists at all. <laughs> Nowhere near it. And if we can like understand those simple things and recognize yeah. it, why didn't people who it, were actually engineering dinosaurs didn't? That's what I thought was so weird about that. It's the brilliance of David Kep's script that it is a plausible oversight (laughs) of something that is so obvious that a kid can pick it up yeah but that's also how you know that they their mind was running on something else entirely it was entirely on that opening day they were just like you said they were just in awe of being able to create dinosaurs that they they weren't even thinking about nothing they weren't thinking about anything else absolutely and it's incredible to me though the B.D. Wong has this little bitty part that tells you so much about the plot. Yeah. Isn't in the rest of the movie. But then recently with these three new ones, he came back, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting that mm-hmm. he would, that they kind of brought his character back and decided to do something with him. Um, but it's cool. Like whenever you go back to the very first movie and you see him again as a young guy and you're kind of like, Oh, wow. Yeah. There he was. He was already yeah, he was there from the very beginning. And yeah. we just forgot about him for two movies, but apparently he got off the island. Yeah. That's a movie in and of itself. How the hell did those engineers get off the island when because everybody else just took off. Yeah. And it was just your main characters taking off while everything is just going insane. <laughs> yeah. And somehow all everybody else has already evacuated enough to come back three movies later, but like, you know, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that to me is a movie in and of itself. Um, getting into kind of some of the other uh, aspects of the movie to me there are very few things in this movie more iconic than the score for Mm -hmm. the film John Williams' beautiful music yes I'm pretty sure 
that this is music that has almost a Pavlovian response to nostalgia for you as well. Mm-hmm. But um, do you remember kind of like the very first time that you saw the movie, how that score kind of felt? Was it like immediately ingrained inside of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because then I would start too. humming it. Yeah. After I watched that movie, from the time I was a kid, I started humming. And yeah. every time I would see something that reminded me of Jurassic Park, I would hum it. it it's the one thing that I think is... I do attribute that score to a big part of why the new ones are still as successful as they are. Yeah. Because even for myself, I was not a fan of Jurassic World. I was not a fan of its sequel. Yet, I've seen all three of them. Yeah. And every single time a trailer drops for one of them, we sit there and watch it, and we hear that score, and we're like, oh, yeah, let's check it out. Yeah. I mean, and it is just that music is something that immediately just makes you like, I have to see it because I want to see, yeah. <laughs> I want to see dinosaurs. I want to hear that score yeah, again. Because it takes you back. I it mean, does. as long as they keep that same score, it takes you back. It and does. that makes you want to see it again because it takes you back to a time where you knew yeah. Jurassic Park to be like fun and amazing and childlike. So every time you hear it, you're like, this movie is going to be the same. Yeah. And so it just takes you back. Which is, I guess, it brings us to an interesting thing with this movie in particular, but I guess, like, yes, uh, kind of the the aspect of its legacy. Where do you stand with the sequels? I don't like the sequels. I don't, really <laughs> I, 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 I don't care for them. <laughs> I thought that Lost World was an interesting movie in hindsight for the aspect of Steven Spielberg and his career. I I like Julianne Moore. I'm a huge Julianne Moore fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, was not a fan of... Malcolm as a lead character, I thought that was kind of odd. I, I mean, well, that one I didn't mind too much. If I'm being honest, I yeah. didn't mind that one. I didn't mind the third one, but it's the one they it's once they rebooted it, or yeah. like it was some so many years later. Yeah, and then you know the Chris Pat Pratt and yeah, <sighs> I like yeah. Chris Pratt, but I I just didn't, and I even like um, Bryce Dallas. Yeah, I like yeah. her as well, but I I, I did I don't care for their newer Jurassic Park like. Whatever am, franchise you want, whatever you want to call it. I don't care for those. Whenever I see the new ones, I'm always impressed watching Bryce Dallas Howard, like, full-on sprint in heels. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, past that, yeah, I, I did not respond to that. I didn't really like the second one. Weirdly, I really like the third one. I don't... I, I think a little bit of it, When I, the more and more I think about it, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when I saw the third one, I saw it in the theater in Hawaii. Yeah. And, of course, these movies are all shot in Hawaii. Yeah. So there was that very interesting aspect of watching it in a theater on Maui, and then you go to the beach, and you literally look out and seemingly see the Jurassic Park <laughs> Islands. Yeah. You know, like, I think that that played a lot into it. <laughs> that is funny. Um. But also, I think another aspect of liking that third one so much is it is the Dr. Grant show. Yeah. And Dr. Grant was kind of my favorite part of the original film. Yeah. I love Sam Neill. There's a great little uh, thing. You know, Sam Neill, my favorite movie of his was In the Mouth of Madness and by John Carpenter. And weirdly, Dean Cundy, John Carpenter's guy, actually shot Jurassic Park as well. Yeah. So that was always a, a, like kind of a fun little fact for me. But like... Um, I liked the third one a lot, but after that, I just didn't really, just didn't really get into that. Yeah, I didn't either. But um, regardless, this first one 
still like just holds up as an unbelievable oh, awesome. film. Yes, I can go back to it over and over. Now, the one thing I will say is if you're planning to watch on HBO Max like we were, <laughs> I would highly recommend going on to Amazon and ordering the Blu-ray and just watching the Blu-ray instead <laughs> of that god-awful transfer that is on HBO Max. That was horrible. Yeah, the transfer was off. I was like, why is the color so pale? It looks like a first-generation DVD rip that they just threw up on there. It was yeah. awful. I, I did not like it. It hurt my eyes. <laughs> like, just, like, like emotionally hurt my eyes. <laughs> and so we had to turn it off and, and put, put on, on the, the gorgeous the, Blu-ray yes. that is very cheap online. I looked up, I think it's like six nine nine or something. Yeah. So it's very easy to get for cheap and is much better to watch that way. Um, any final thoughts on Jurassic Park? No. Just, it, I think it's to this day, it's still like a fun family film so you have like children and you just want to sit down and watch a film a family film where your children actually get to be like excited and scream a little bit but not too scared you know they won't be too scared but i think there's so many fun parts in it that that fun will override the, the fear and i think like if you still like family days you know where you yep. get to sit down in front of tv with your family and figure out what your kids like and what they like to watch and how they'll respond to something that you grew up with and yeah. may love as well i say just watch it over just and take a yeah it's, it's a great rainy day movie take a gander yeah you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great rainy day movie yes it is because just the atmosphere of it, and it's the cool too because it. then the kids are inside and instead of having yeah. them like bother you the whole time yeah. just sit down and watch that Jurassic part with them it'll go with the tone of what's outside <laughs> absolutely and then you know if they like that one you have like five others that you can watch immediately after yep. make a whole day out of yep. it. Yeah, a full dinosaur day. <laughs> <laughs> That's the theme park right there. There you go. And, <laughs> and then afterwards, they'll be dying to go to Islands of Adventures to get on the rides, yeah. which I remember really loving. Yeah, I, I did too. I don't really know how I feel about them now. Me but <laughs> like I remember as a kid getting on the one where you're on the hang glider going through the trees. Yeah. And I thought that was like unbelievable. I couldn't believe that that was... A real thing. So. Yeah, but now you're in the boat. You remember the other one where you're kind of there you're is following like, like the trail of things, and you get to see a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, come out that's at right. You yeah, and, you showed this to me on. I yeah, think, it's almost it like, like, like a little roller coaster ride. Right? Yeah. yeah, that looked really really cool because yeah. I, I remember you showed that one to me, and I was like, "Whoa, that, that's yeah, that's the one I got completely on. different than yeah. what I remember." Um, was that there at that time? Yeah, that's what I got on. Oh, okay. So there, I don't know about, there, you know, anybody, but that's the one I, I got to ride. There was a ride that you showed me. I thought it was a Jurassic Park ride that you showed me Maybe. on YouTube or something. It looked really, really cool. I remember you showed me a ride that was, I think, at Universal. That looked really, really cool. Now it was like Harry go, Potter or something. Maybe it was. Now I'm going to have to go and look on YouTube at New yeah. Universal <laughs> <laughs> rides. That'll be the rest of my evening. Yeah. <laughs> um, moving to our next one, though. Uh, the one that I had picked was War of the Worlds from 1995. I mean, from 2005. Sorry. Um, again, an interesting film in terms of where it fell in his career, um, but also kind of this film being another kind of, you know, spiritual successor to some degree or another to his film Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very interesting with these two movies that Jaws and Close Encounters came back to back. And then over the span of time, he did two films that sort of were kind of 
compliments to those movies, you know, uh, at various points in his career. And interestingly, just like in 1993, you had War of the Worlds in 2005 come out alongside Munich. Mm, Another uh, very dark and very personal film of his. Uh, I love Munich personally. I know that there are a lot of very divided opinions on that movie. I don't remember seeing it, honestly. And if I did, I only saw it once and I don't remember it now. I think that that is maybe Eric Bana's best performance. Oh, that one. Yes, with Eric Bana. Okay. And Daniel Craig. Yeah, I did see that one. But like I said, I only saw it once, so I can't remember everything because I only saw it like that once. That was one of those movies I saw that I thought was unbelievable. It's incredible to see the, you know, with Munich, you can very quickly get into an entire conversation just about that movie and some of the decisions that he made around what he wanted to talk about with that film. But um, it's an unbelievable movie and a movie that I think is is definitely worth rewatching if you didn't necessarily maybe like it the first time you saw it or, or whatnot. But it's interesting that these two movies came off of, out of a period where he was sort of going back and forth between very successful films and movies that just were not connected. Yeah. Uh, starting in 2001, he did AI, um, movie that I really liked, but a lot of people did not connect yeah, I liked with. AI. Um, it of course was kind of, uh, uh, him taking on a project that had been shepherded for years by Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. that Kubrick eventually gave to him. Um, and I thought he did an incredible job with it. Uh, and I think a lot of people were very divided on how they felt on it. Um, they did Minority Report, which is an unbelievable movie. Yeah, and I really like Minority Report. A very exciting film and a movie that did very well. Uh, he followed the, in the same year as Minority Report. He also did Catch Me If You Can, which mm-hmm. I talked about earlier. Movie that I love. Movie that I think um, has seemingly kind of picked up fans as the years went on. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that people now look back at Catch Me If You Can as a very special film from him. But at the time, I think people were a little, a little thrown by it. You know, I mean, it was definitely, uh, it kind of looked, I think when it came, the response that I remember for it when it came out was that it was kind of the Leonardo DiCaprio show. And I think that at that moment in time, it was sort of split between people being very excited for a new DiCaprio performance and people kind of having DiCaprio fatigue, you know? So I, I think that it was kind of, you know, he was in that odd period in his career where people were either really in love with him or really tired of seeing him, yeah. you know? Um, and then, of course, he, he followed that up with a movie that I really liked that we watched not too long ago, but a lot of people did not like, which was The Terminal. Yeah, I like The Terminal. I think I have a soft spot in my heart for The Terminal. Yeah. I know a lot of people really, really, really did not like that movie at all. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Um and then, of course, he does War of the Worlds in Munich. War of the Worlds is a movie that I still really love, despite having some major problems with it. <laughs> yeah. So we'll get into that in a second. But where did you first see War of the Worlds? Oh, I think I actually saw that in theater. I did, too. Yeah, I think I saw that in theater because that was around the time, like, oh, man. I was, like, going non- nonstop. And then I think I had, like, a brother and a sister that worked at one of the yeah. theaters here in Atlanta. And sometimes they were able to get like free tickets for immediate family. Yeah. And because they were able to get free tickets for immediate family, we saw a lot of movies around that year. Yeah. I say in a span of like maybe 10 years, we got to see yeah. a lot of movies in that span because 
of them working there. So yeah. I remember standing in theater, actually. And I liked it. I mean, I enjoyed it in theater because you know how that surround sound and the uh-huh. big booms and the yep. big crashing and everything on a big screen is just so much better. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's I, so I much better. And it completely. makes you even love something that maybe first out you love but then later yeah. you look at it and you're like did i really love that yeah. but you can't help but to love it the, especially the first time because yep. it's, it's it's so big it's the only problem that i had with we just watched a film that uh we're we're kind of wrapping up movies that we needed to see for our 2022 uh top 10 yeah uh we just watched a film by ron howard called 13 lives which yeah. i really loved i thought it was a, a fantastic it film it was really it was phenomenal um my one issue with it is I wish I could have seen it in a theater. Me too. And that's not an issue with the film. It's an issue with our availability of presentation. I didn't even know that movie was in a theater. There was no real promotion yeah, for it. Yeah, I don't in, remember seeing it either. Maybe there was outside of Georgia. Yeah. But I know that uh, whenever it came out, there wasn't really a lot of promotion for it. I likely saw it on bills and didn't know what it was. Yeah. You know, and I and, and I, so. I likely saw it playing at some place like the Plaza or Landmark or even Regal and likely did not know what it was uh, and just yeah. kind of was like, oh, OK, whatever. And then as we were looking at movies to kind of round out what things that, you know, we wanted to maybe see or whatever, you know, kind of as last minute additions, I stumbled upon an article that Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> called that his favorite movie of the year. And I was like, that's odd. A Ron Howard movie. OK. We watch it. That movie's unbelievable. Yeah, it's good. That is the kind of movie that I wish we could have seen in a theater. Yeah. And I completely agree with you that seeing movies in theaters, especially, I think it's one of the reasons why I love War of the Worlds as much as I do, is because that theatrical experience kind of created a place for it in my brain that otherwise, if I'd probably seen it, you know, we didn't have streaming at that time. But likely, if I had seen it on streaming... Yeah. At that time, I might not have really thought that much about it. I exactly. might have really so you, remembering remembering it on the big screen is what really gives it its like power. Yeah. You know, because like I said, we just—I mean, we saw it on—we just saw it. Yeah. You know, streaming. streaming. Yeah. And it was still good. I mean, it was still good, but it just didn't have that same effect like it did. Like once you saw it in theaters, because when I remember seeing it in theaters, I was like, wow. Yeah. I walked away like, wow. Yeah. There's something about being it. War of the Worlds is a very dark movie yeah, for is. a Spielberg movie. Yeah. It is attached to, I think by nature of when it was made, um, attached to a lot of uh, uh, conversations about 9-11 and a lot of kind of post-9-11 feelings. It is a dark, dark, dark movie. Yeah. That I think that's one of the reasons why I, there's a little bit of a fault with its ending is that that movie is so dark and really kind of so set within kind of this, this really kind of um, harsh worldview that to kind of have this tacked on fifties ending really doesn't feel correct. Like it doesn't feel like it's of the film in my opinion. Yeah. Um, But what made you choose this one? I'm curious. I, so looking at Jurassic Park and looking at the totality of his career, it was an interesting movie to pair with it. And it's a movie that I love. I mean, you you know, whenever I see that it's on, I always want to watch it. Yeah. Um, At this point, what I love about this movie is the first 40 minutes and then sequences until the end. Okay. Um, I don't think that it's a movie that I wish I could love from 
first frame to last frame, and I don't. Okay. I, 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 my relationship with the movie is that I think the first 40 minutes, the introductions of all of the characters, uh, I guess, you know, getting into the cast, you know, Tom Cruise uh, uh, returning to work with Spielberg, and also this was the movie they fell out during. Um, but Tom Cruise, uh, the two kids, uh, you know, introducing his, his uh, two kids, played by Dakota Fanning and uh, Justin Chatwin, mm-hmm. and um, also, you know, introducing his ex-wife, played by Miranda Otto, mm-hmm. and uh, a quick little Amy Ryan cameo that I always forget yeah. about that's awesome, yeah. where she just kind of shows up as the neighbor with a baby. Yeah. Um, I love that whole opening, getting to them getting out of New York. Yeah. And it that whole experience of meeting the kids, getting into kind of the the kind of uh, you know, kind of rough kind of back and forth between the kids and the dad. Yeah. You know, starting there and then moving into this thing of like we have to get out of here no matter what. Yeah. And it was funny recently watching The Last of Us, the first episode of The Last of Us. Yeah. And that entire... I had, of course, played the game. I did not like the game. I'm sure we're going to talk about that <laughs> show at some point. I did not like that game at all. I That game was irritating to me. I thought it was a really good show. I'm really liking it as a TV show. But it was really funny that playing the game, I never ever noticed this, the opening sequence when they're running away, where they're trying to get out, and the daughter's in the backseat, is a big... You know, maybe it wasn't conscious, but it's a big quote of War of the Worlds when they're trying to get out of New York. You know, all the way down to the daughter and the last of us says, is this a terrorist? That's Dakota Fanning's line in War of the Worlds when they're trying to get out. (laughs) The whole aspect of the camera floating around the car and everything. And if you play the game, they mirror this within the, the show that the camera is very much kind of attached to the car in a very kind of, um, uh, God's eye view kind of way yeah. where you're sort of like, it feels like you're inside of the car. Well, it also feels like you're getting a view of everything yeah, at the same time. Right. And like, you know, that, that whole sequence is so phenomenal leading all the way up to when they finally get to the mom's house. And then once they get to their mother's house and see if they're not there and that they took off to Boston, that she and their new stepdad took off to Boston from that point on, I'm, in and out yeah. with the movie. I there are parts I really like, and there are parts where I'm just kind of like, ah, yeah. it didn't it didn't land. You know, it didn't yeah. land the way it could have. That being said, my experience of seeing this movie in my in the theater when it first came out, this was another movie I saw in Hawaii, is one of my favorite movie going experiences I've ever had in my entire life, and is probably a big reason why I love Steven Spielberg the way that I do today. Yeah. Um. Seeing this movie there and seeing just the the atmosphere of it, I never felt at that age. I never been in a theater and felt atmosphere, yeah, like this movie. And I think a little bit of it had to do with the fact that you know you're in a place where it's like once there are clouds, people tell you get inside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. When when we were in Hawaii, it was like. If we're on the beach and there's suddenly clouds, everybody's like, get in. Yeah. Like, get off the beach and get inside. Because, you know, there's jellyfish and stuff like that when there's bad weather. Um, Also, just kind of, if you're out there playing by yourself, nobody wants you getting swept away by a sudden current. Yeah. But, like, I think that that little 
aspect of it, but then also, you know, there was uh, kind of the aspect of, of the way that Tom Cruise played that role was something I just, at that age, I just hadn't seen in a movie. I just hadn't seen that before. Yeah. Now being more aware of, of film and other, you know, and other films, it's, it's a Tom Cruise performance and I love a good Tom Cruise performance. And that is one of them. Who doesn't, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But at that time I was not aware enough to really, that was something new to me in that moment in my life in 2005, that was something new to me. So it just kind of all around just blew me away. Yeah. Um, I guess like going back to this movie though, how did you feel about it? Like coming back to it now, we've seen it a couple of times since. And I think, varying circumstances sometimes we it was a movie we put on the background we were cooking or something and then sometimes we actually sat down and really watched it but recently we sat down you know for this and really watched it how did you feel about it coming back to it i still love it yeah you know of course i mean it's like i said it's not it's never the way you watch it in theater right it's never that it's never the same again when you do it that way but i still say i would still say i like this film yeah it's not one of my favorites but i like it it's interesting. It's an interesting juxtaposition to Jurassic Park because it's a movie that largely has moments in there that could be iconic. Yeah. But for various reasons, they never were. Mm-hmm. I think a little bit of it has to do with the darkness of the movie. It is a very, very pessimistic film for its first <laughs> hour and 40 minutes or whatever. And then randomly tries to do this thing that was very prevalent in 50s kind of cold war horror movies where it randomly tried to suddenly be like but there is a brighter day yeah and you're just like where the hell did this come from you know (laughs) um it's also a movie that takes some really really disturbing detours yeah and i'm thinking in particular about the sequence when they're in the car okay and they're they come up on all of the people going toward the hudson ferry that, and the Tim Robbins scene. The, I was about to get to the Tim <laughs> Robbins scene also, but that detour though, when they're in the car, you forget how truly terrifying that would like you want to get that out of your mind after it happens. When you have and I think it's especially weird now, like kind of post pandemic, mm-hmm. looking back at that movie and seeing how people went crazy in grocery stores trying to get toilet paper yeah. and all this other stuff that you're sort of you saw a little shade that that might really happen if a bunch of people are walking and there are people just driving through with the only working car and suddenly you have people that are break you know they threw something through the window and then the guy jumped on top of the car and despite cutting through his hands started pulling the glass apart yeah you had people that saw the kids inside and still ran up with bats and broke through the windows and tried to pull them out yeah you had people that were piling in on top of little Dakota Fanning yep. while she's in there screaming and and terrified. And then you had, you know, a guy pull Tom Cruise's teenage son out and start beating him up. Yep. And, you know, finally Tom Cruise pulls out a gun, fires in the air. Another guy pulls out a gun on him. He and says, I'm taking the car. He says, I'm taking the car. He's like, let me just take my daughter. And the guy's like, yeah, fine. Takes his daughter. Another guy picks up Tom Cruise's gun. And, of course, the second that they're away, that guy runs up to the car and kills the dude that just stole the car. Yeah, but you know what's and, so, like, crazy about that is 
how much are you right in a way that we could get become that yeah animalistic in the way of us trying to to survive because it's like death versus survival yeah. at that point but i think what was even more fascinating to me about that part yeah was the fact that People were destroying the car. Yep. So if you wanted the car so bad, why yeah. are you destroying it? Because yeah. that's the very thing that you're trying to get. So why would you destroy it? Yeah. Because you're going to end up not being able to drive it if you destroy it. Yeah. So, and I think we do do that sometimes. We're yeah. kind of like, if I can't have it, then neither can you. Yeah. And I think that's what I saw with that scene more than anything else because people were like destroying that car. Yeah. So what was the point in stealing it from them? If you were just gonna make it undrivable. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so it was a little weird. I was like, uh, so you're not getting anywhere either. You took these people and and almost killed them to get the car just so you can destroy the car and not have yep. it work anyway. Yep. Um <laughs> yeah. so sometimes I wonder about our level of thinking in a moment of crisis. Yeah. You see how we yeah. can get. <laughs> yeah. And that that's that's one of the things I think was so fascinating about the movie is that it it displayed that very well. Yeah. It really did show, I think, partially to the film's detriment. It, yeah, it, it shows who we can become it, when we throw civility out the window. It shows the true brutality of, of human beings toward one another yeah. in the face of, of life and death circumstances on a global scale. Yeah. And that was... And, you know, I mean, of course, I, I think within the story, like, it was supposed to be kind of more or less centralized into New York, and like, kind of the New York and New Jersey areas as to where all of the stuff was occurring. Mm -hmm. But regardless, it, it feels global. And yes. I think that was a smart thing about putting in New York is because living in America, New York kind of in some ways feels like a global place, yeah, like you know? international. Like, you have some of everything there. <laughs> and even going there, it feels like it's not part of the country in some ways mm -hmm. you know it feels like a foreign place mm -hmm. and because it's it is so vast and it does move at such a different pace mm -hmm. and you know it, you, you don't walk down the street here and see hundreds of neon signs no, running all not. night long you know <laughs> it's like you, you see like four yeah. and they're in a very specific place in yep. downtown like yeah. you know in underground atlanta like it, I mean, after what one thirty two here it gets very dark <laughs> yeah yeah and like it, it, it's it's very interesting, you know, that there is this feeling outside of New York that that is a great kind of, um, I, I guess you could say, kind of like stand-in for the world yeah. in some ways. And I think it, 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 like, almost to the movie's detriment, it does show that darkness. You know, you mentioned a Tim Robbins sequence. That Tim Robbins sequence is unbelievably disturbing. Yes, it is. And is like on, on so many different levels between what you see in terms of the realities of, of what the aliens are actually doing yep, to implications of things that he says to Dakota Fanning. Yeah. Where, you know, it's like uh, th there, there is a moment where he does say, you know, if something happens to your daddy, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. You know, and you can read it a couple of different ways because it does not come off correct <laughs> you know i mean it and, just doesn't come up whether you're looking and, at it from a sexual uh, yeah i mean you know or even circumstance or, yeah, view, or even a point of view where you're just going like this man is off his rocker yeah this is weird 
I mean, either with his hoodie cape. I know. Oh my goodness! And his Power Ranger on his belt. And he, yeah, I know he had a Power Ranger, Ranger on his, his belt. belt. And, and you said that's his little buddy. And I'm like, that's his friend him. because he had no one else he was talking to. That had to be his like imaginary friend. He's what else do he that's have? His little buddy. <laughs> that's his little buddy. I almost died when you said that when we watched him. That was amazing. <laughs> that's his friend, man. That's his only friend. But yeah, I mean, what he says to her. Is yeah no it could be taken weird it, if if your vague. mind is going there yeah. it's very vague it's very and vague. I think you could take it any way but that is the point but yeah. also I'm going I mean it's not I guess it's not too weird because he and could that's be the, genuine about it yeah and that's what I'm saying and, he I, like me I'm not taking it from yeah. a weird perception yeah. I'm taking it from he's just like no like I can take care of us I have a basement yeah I have food stored he even told Tom Cruise that so I think he was just reiterating that yeah with the little girl if Tom Cruise were to die it's just the fact that you know how crazy he is yeah and you know how out of his mind he is yeah that it's intentionally left very vague yeah it's left what, very vague. what he could be implying by what he's saying to this very young girl. Yeah, but you remember Tom Cruise when he says, stay away from and, my daughter. Never what, talk to her. You don't have any reason to talk to her. that's what makes it even worse. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. He's a father. So is. the and, father will think the worst intentions. Like, come on. And as an audience member, that's what makes it even scarier. Yeah. Is yeah. the fact that, you know, if it was a shot of Tom Cruise looking over at him and then looking away... We as an audience would have been like, oh. okay, we're not that okay. Yeah, and it would have it would have almost made you feel like, man, like he might die. Yeah, you know, and like kind of giving you more of like a sad kind of, and that's the brilliance of Spielberg. I mean, he is a master manipulator when it comes to his audience. Yeah, I mean, he he truly is, and but in a good way, in, in a in the best way possible, yeah. <laughs> in the way that that you're supposed to be yeah. as a great conductor of cinema yeah you know he he is a master manipulator of his audience i mean he can really he knows how to put in those little things to make you feel whatever it is that that is the intention of the scene yeah so clearly yeah and spielberg is not one who normally goes after ambiguity Mm -hmm. but the fact that what was said was so ambiguous yeah that he has Tom Cruise react in such a way where he does come over and say, like, get away from her. Yeah. You have nothing to say from, from to her. It immediately just puts that nasty feeling in the pit yeah. of your stomach where you're just like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't even want to think I, about I, what he could have I, I want this to end now. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, it's brilliant to me, but I think that it definitely kind of makes the staying power of this film a little odd because mm-hmm. War of the Worlds is not exact. It is the kind of movie that you want to put on about as frequently as we put it on. Yeah. Which is whenever we see it kind of crop up and we're like, I haven't seen it in a while. You watch it. You're completely entranced by the first 40 minutes. And then the rest of the movie, you're just like, oh, <laughs> because it's just so dark and it just feels so hard getting yeah. through it. And at a certain point, I think you're accepting how difficult it is to navigate through this. Yeah. Until randomly at the very end, <laughs> it's just suddenly you will not like that ending alone. It is suddenly like everything <laughs> is just like, and then we're okay. Yeah. So I guess first of all, to get into that, very, I can see clearly <laughs> they may as well have played that. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking. So I guess to very quickly kind of go over that whole aspect of it you have a certain point in the movie where 
Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning get separated uh, from their his son Robbie, uh, who is played interestingly by Justin Chatwin. Yes. Um, the entire thing there being a very very clear. It's not even attempting to be veiled oh, no, metaphor for kids that went to war in Iraq yeah. despite their parents' objections. Yep. Um, and he, they split off. It's just Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning. <laughs> That's when they meet up with Tim Robbins. At the end of it, Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning get out of everything. The aliens start dying because of sunlight or something. Like, I, no, because I think was, after being there for a while, they realized that oh, they the, can't... it was the water. It was the microbes in the water. Yeah, they couldn't yeah, sustain living there. That's what they started realizing, that they can't actually sustain living there. Yeah. Like, they were very and to it, do things temporarily, but they couldn't actually sustain the, living on this earth. And you see them drinking the water earlier in the movie, and, like, when you actually finally first see them for the first time, and you see our planet is made of so much water, and we built up an immunity to the microbes inside yeah. of water and everything, but they haven't, so it just killed them. Yeah. Okay. So they magically died because of water. It was a very M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> kind of thing. Um, remind me a lot of signs. Uh, <laughs> like thinking back on it now. And then Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning get to Boston, show up at the grandparents' house. Now, the grandparents, very funnily, are actually played by Anne Robinson and Gene Barry. They were in the original okay. War of the Worlds. Um, or one of the many original War of the Worlds. But um, they show up at the at, at Boston, where they are. Miranda Otto comes out, runs up to Dakota Fanning. They see the grandparents are okay. Like, yay. The stepdad is okay. Yay. <laughs> and then randomly, Robbie walks out. I know. And so he split off to go and fight with the military. You're pretty sure that he's dead because there is a moment at which he... Yeah, there was a massive died. explosion where the army tanks were. And, and like, so you're just like, how did you escape that? How did everybody escape? Like, yeah. yeah, he very obviously died right there. <laughs> and then he comes out and him and Tom Cruise share a, I can't believe you look and then embrace and then big crane shot of the sun beaming yeah. down on them. And then we're it, it, like Morgan Freeman delivers a voiceover that is just like random where he's like we've built up our immunity up to this point but nobody else can take our planet yeah it's like <laughs> no yeah no not after we've gone through all of that yeah, that is not the world that you gave us <laughs> the whole reason why the boy goes off is yeah. to fight in a war just to end up at you your grandparents' house and get there before your dad and your sister. Yeah. Like so, you left your sister and it, your dad it, yeah. to like go through this whole journey alone just so just to run, run back, back home, home, like without them, like yeah. before them. But so I, I thought you said we have to fight back. You remember in the beginning yeah. you kept making such a big deal. We have to fight back. We have and, to I'm like, but you're safe in Boston. Yeah. They're the ones that actually had it to complete a journey yeah. of like they even got caught yeah. by the aliens, like machines and ships, yeah. and had to find a way out. Your father yep. had like five grenades in his yep. in a, on a belt yep. on one of the um, military guys. That's put one up of in the best moments yes, of the movie. and destroy a tank. But you're the one that's going off to fight. That's why I was like, that's weird. Yeah. That was such a weird, like little. 
yeah add-ins for the movie it, it really was i i'm like I your dad and your sister was the one fighting the real war yeah, what are you talking it, <laughs> you love them so you could be safe while they fought the real war it's one of those things where <laughs> i really by and large wish that so you know i mean one of the reasons for the ending spielberg has always been very clear about it one of the reasons for the ending was that he never liked the ending of close encounters because once he had kids he didn't understand roy leaving the kids to go to space yeah and so he always felt that was a pessimistic ending. He wanted to kind of correct it by having the family all come back together at the end. Now, I understand why Roy left, as I said earlier, <laughs> because that was a greater calling. Yes, I understand this messed up and it's kind of dark, but like... Yeah, but yeah. you can also say that as a man with no kids. Like, and, not every man with I, children I, may not feel that way. I, I get it. But also, like, if he had stayed... I just want to reiterate that he's a crazy person I that know. put his family in grave danger <laughs> if he stays. He literally went insane and smashed the house apart in front of his wife and his kids and put all of them in harm's way to some degree or another. Just throwing that out there. It yeah, makes... I mean, that also may say a man that may not be quite happy with what he already had. And, and so he was looking for more. So maybe that's why it was so easy for him to leave his family. And I, I think that that was... A little bit of a thing with it. I don't know. When we talk about our top 10 and we talk a little bit about the Fablemans, like, <laughs> there's stuff that we're going to get into with all of that stuff. But anyway, like, uh, and, and, you know, the aspect of fathers in roles in his films and what that kind of means today. But, like, I, I, I get what why he wanted to end War of the Worlds this way. I just don't like it. Yeah. Like, I, plain I and simple. Like it either. feels tacked on. Yeah. And... If I'm being honest, the the Morgan Freeman voiceover in the opening and the closing could have just been cut. Mm -hmm. And the aliens dying, it, was, it could have been left a little ambiguous. Yeah. And Tom Cruise could have shown back up in Boston. The mom could have still been alive. Grandparents still could have been alive. She could have been reunited. Uh, Dakota Fanning could have been reunited with her mom. And then it's just like Robbie never made it. And he really is back out on his own. And that kind of goes back to something at the very beginning where Robbie says to him, you're just trying to pawn us off on mom so that you can be by yourself because that's how you like it. Yeah, you just want to worry about So you can have no responsibility other than to like, worry about yourself. But I'm like, but you ended there first. Yeah. You got there first. Like and He had to carry Dakota Fennett all the way there. You got there first. And because of that, it makes <laughs> a little bit more sense why when you get to the end, if he reunites Dakota Fanning, but he ne but Robbie never okay. came back. That so I'm like, how did you get there it, before them? I'm yeah, still like, and I'm still, it, in, I'm so dumbfounded by that part. <laughs> it makes a little bit more sense because now all he's turning around. He's reunited them. He knows he can't stay there, and he is now on his own. But it's not because he wants to be. Yeah, it's now because this is just his reality that he has to deal with. It puts his character in a whole different position. Yeah, than where he was in the beginning simultaneously and it's kind alone. it's cool if it implied for, that um, Tom Cruise kind of turned around and decided to go back and look for him. Yeah. If it more implied and, that, that would have been a cooler ending yeah. than you seeing Robbie I, come out of the house. I, I think either to leave it ambiguous and just have him collapse because Robbie never made it back or to, like you said, have him go back out and look. Either of those options are far better than this weird, stupid 50s ending that we got. <laughs> My opinion, it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, though, I still think it's 
an incredible film that has some great visuals and I mean it's it's still better than most mediocre you know most of the mediocre films that we get yeah. all the time I mean, it's still masterfully made film um, I'm curious if the you know we were talking about the just didn't really have a staying power I think a little bit of that also had to do with the fact that that was a weird period for Tom Cruise mm-hmm. you know that was him and Spielberg fell out around that time because of the Oprah couch jumping thing and some of the other stuff that was coming out about him and stuff. So I think that was another thing that weirdly kind of tarnished that movie's legacy was at that time. I think now it's kind of in that place where it's picked up new people. I mean, yeah, it's a little really lost have now. Any, yeah. it, it didn't really have any context for that unless they get on Wikipedia. Yeah. Then there's immediately nothing but context for that whole situation. Yeah. But it is very interesting because with Minority Report and War of the Worlds, the one thing that I will say is that it really established a really, really good working duo with those two. And I wish that we could have seen at least a couple more films yeah. with the two of them. Maybe we will one day. I don't know. But um, any final thoughts for you on War of the Worlds and Jurassic no. Park or Steven Spielberg? No. Then uh, I think we've said it all. I think so, too. <laughs> I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. And then we will be returning with our top 10 each of us will be presenting a top 10 for of movies from 2022 and then uh yeah so, uh thank you you guys for tuning in to the film cafeteria i'm scott and i am Brittany, and we will see you guys next time